Hello and welcome to Top, the Open Podcast Podcast. Your hosts, Matthias and Wolfgang, will guide you through the ecosystem and the tools and services which make podcasting work. And they'll talk about their open source platform for podcast analytics. Let's dive right in. Matthias, we are approaching the end of our funding of our project, of the Open Podcast Project. And one big chunk of our last milestone is documentation. Yay. <laughs> Which is quite crucial for us developers. Do you have a favorite documentation out there that you really love or admire how they did it? My favorite one must be Redis. There's an anecdote about working at Trivago a couple of years ago. Why are there that many Redis fanboys out there? On my second podcast, the German podcast with my colleague Andy, he's also a, a super big Redis fanboy. What is the reason for that? Redis is a tool which targets developers and it's unapologetically developer focused. That means that documentation treats you like an adult and an adult would look up definitions if they didn't know it. But Redis focuses on the core of what makes a great key value store and nothing else. So it doesn't try to sell things. At least in the past, before Redis Labs went to the redis.com website then because either you wanted a really good straight to the point answer to a very detailed technical question or you looked into for example runtime complexity or an implementation detail but you would never ask yourself is redis the right tool for me that decision was already made it was by far the best in class key value store so they more or less skipped that part and and they cut straight to the point so let me give you an example. If you wanted to store a list of members in Redis, then you could store it as a set or a list. And inside the Redis documentation, it would tell you how long it would take to store or retrieve information from any of these two data structures. But it would assume that you know the difference between a set and a list. So I liked it because... It felt like you were talking to a fellow developer. So then this is exactly what we want to achieve with our documentation of Open Podcasts, right? We want to convince developers. We are somewhat in a situation where we target a media company or someone in the media space, which also is a little more technical than usual. Isn't it, isn't it weird to, to say that we target a company? I mean, we are an open source project, right? It's true that this is a term that comes from marketing speech. Um, but at the same time, I guess we talked about it in the previous episodes as well. It's not like you start an open source project today and people will show up on your door. Instead, what people want is some sort of story around the project. And you kind of want to address the needs of both communities, the developer community and maybe the marketing community. And so it is really important these days for open core companies to address both, yes. So picture yourself someone that has a concrete problem in the podcast space and they look for a solution and they probably search for some keywords and then they look into the first couple hits and then someone has to maybe address their problem. So you have to start from there and Usually people skim information a lot, so you want to focus on the main points on why your solution fixes their problem. And do you think that we address tech people, so developers, or more business people, 
So where do they have the problem? Do business people see the problem and want to, to find a good solution? Or is it more on the tech side? Like a developer faces this problem of, of crawling data, getting data out of the data storage of Spotify and Apple. It's probably a longer discovery process, which goes back and forth between engineering and other departments like marketing. They have a problem with their data, yes, but developers will go and try to f retrieve that data, try to find a solution. And maybe they might fail and then someone else might pick up this project again and so on until they reach a point where they say, well, we need analytics for Apple and Spotify and we just don't have that right now. So what can we do about it? Now, the question is, who will go and reach out for a solution? That depends on the size of the organization, of course. And maybe for different organizations, it can be more of a technical person or more of a non-technical person. But for sure, you don't want to exclude the non-technical people, at least not directly on the homepage. Now, with Redis, for example, of course, that's something very technical and the high-level documentation is pretty thin. But uh, for us, in our case, it's not the same situation, honestly. I mean, we also have two access points, right? We have the website itself, where we have more generic information and also a video, some high-level description. And of course, we also have the GitHub repository where we have really tech-focused documentation. So I think we have also those two access points because developers very often, they just search on, on GitHub to find maybe some libraries or other people who already solved this problem. We also did that. We tried to find other people. Are there any open source projects or even kind of hidden repositories? Because we also don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? A good example for this is Stripe, which is a inherently business solution, really. What they do is they solve payments. And when they started, they knew that a couple other companies were already out there already did something similar, not quite, but similar. But what they realized was that the decision process within an organization was also heavily skewed towards what developers thought was possible. So some manager would go and ask engineering, hey, is that possible? Is that doable? And so the documentation had to be written for these people that would come and and see, okay, how do I integrate this with our existing infrastructure? And they did this extremely well. Now, of course, the people that would pay in the end would be not the people that integrated the solution, but you first had to convince the developers before you could convince the entire company. I think at the end, you have to convince both sides, right? You have to convince the business people. You have to speak their language and point out the advantages like the price or something like that, but also on the tech side, how easy it is to implement it, to integrate it. And then that's important for the developers because usually business people decide and then ask the developers, as you said. So you really have to address both worlds and also convince both worlds, I would say. Yes, but in the case of Stripe, the canonical answer before Stripe was, that's just not possible. There is no API out there that can do this. And then the project would have been canceled within the company because it was just too daunting to build something like this yourself. I think that the big difference was also that you can access all the documentation without having an account, for example. With other companies, usually it's you convince the business people and then you get a PDF or something like that of the API and outdated PDF documentation. 
But with Stripe, everything was online. So you can just go there, have a look, what methods do, do I have? What And how can I integrate it? Can I cover all my use cases? And I think that's an advantage that is also beneficial for the selling process. And usually documentation was never part of, of the sales process. And I think that is the huge difference. And nowadays, I think it's quite common to have all the documentation out there publicly available and all the devs can just have a look. Exactly. We take it for granted now, but Stripe started that movement. And now you have companies like Paddle that are in the same space, which pretty much has very similar documentation, but Stripe started a trend, which is amazing. And nowadays, the bar has been raised by companies like Stripe as well for all the other tech companies out there, for all the other solutions. So it's not enough to send around a PDF. You need to have accessible documentation, examples. We pretty much take that for granted now, which is also why we don't really talk about it that much in this episode. Just look at the Stripe documentation. <laughs> I think for our documentation, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. And that's why we started now the, the last part of our project, the Milestone 5, it's called, to improve also the documentation at the end. But we also have invested a lot of time already in the documentation because we are in contact with a lot of media companies. We try to promote our product to those companies and talk with developers. So it's crucial to have already this documentation. But Matthias, maybe you can explain a little bit how we built our documentation and what tools we are using at the moment to make our lives easier. It's a pretty simple stack, pretty basic. We use Word. We send uh, PDFs around via fax, if anyone remembers fax. No, of course not. Um, since we both use IDEs, we are big fans of Markdown, I guess I can say that. And the reason is that it's just a text format and some mark and some markup and a Top of it, you got nothing else, so you can host it pretty much wherever you want. You can convert it to different formats. It's pretty amazing. One thing that many people don't know yet, which is almost as great as Markdown, is Mermaid, which simplifies the way you build graphs. And it's also a textual representation. It takes a little more work to get used to, but it's definitely something that improved our documentation, especially the rendered part, because... We don't really have to go and edit images anymore. We just edit text and the image gets rendered automatically in SVG. And if that doesn't tell you anything, that's fine. But just remember, you take a textual representation, you put that into your documentation and out comes some beautiful graph, some beautiful design which shows you how the components are connected. Previously, we used Excalidraw and I guess we still use that. Excalidraw is just a drawing app. But what we liked about it was that it wasn't only straight lines. It felt a bit more like creating a sketch, like how two engineers would sit together and build an architecture of something. And it's online, right? So you can just go to the website, excalidraw.com, and you can draw it there. We usually use it for presentations because there we prefer to have this nice, pretty look. It's just... It's just nicer to have to have this this kind of drawing style in your presentation in your slides. And on top of that, you can collaborate. You can more than one person can edit this graph in real time, so you can share your screen. And it almost feels like a whiteboard session where you build out a piece of architecture or infrastructure. And I still remember at the beginning of this project, 
that we talked about hosting of our documentation, where to host it and which software to use. There were different pros and cons, and it was sort of a heated discussion because no single tool out there solves all the problems. But at the end of the day, we decided to be very pragmatic and use something that sort of works. It has its downsides. Wolfgang, what did we decide on? What's our stack for hosting documentation? As you already said, we are big fans of Markdown. And I think that was the main decision to have everything in Markdown. So even the website, the documentation on the website is in Markdown. To have Markdown documentation on GitHub, that's quite common. I think everyone uses that for, for GitHub documentation. GitHub renders the Markdown for you and you have this nice presentation of your, of the of the documentation. But for but for the website, it's not that common to have Markdown. And there we use Doxify. It's super simple. And that's also why at the end we decided to go for that because it's just a simple solution that renders your Markdown files in JavaScript in the browser. And you end up with a really pretty neat documentation website that you can customize. You can add your menu items to have different subpages. You can at HTML tags, if you need that for integrating, for example, for us, for our podcast player or for a video, that's all possible. So you can customize it, but you still have this really simple workflow of writing everything in Markdown and render it to your website. And this can be done easily with GitHub. Again, you just host it on GitHub pages, so you don't need an external provider like Netlify or Cloudflare or any of those other hosting providers. You can just use GitHub. It's definitely suitable for that. And at the end, it does exactly what we need it. Sounds perfect. So looks like there are no downsides with that stack. So of course, there are always downsides. So you have, for example, the problem with JavaScript. It's rendered on the client side. So it's not rendered on the server. You don't have static files. You need JavaScript. You have the problems with SEO, for example. It's a bit slower because it's rendered on the client and you have to download all the framework data, your markdown files, render it. So it takes a while, but we are not talking about seconds. It's it's still quite fast and it's super simple. And that's a big advantage. Of course, you can use a static site generator. You render it on the server or in your workflow. There are definitely some advantages, but of course, usually those solutions are bigger, more complicated, and you have also to invest more time into the design, for example. That's usually also a downside. And with Doxify, it's super simple, easy. And for our use case for open source project, especially for the beginning, it's, I think, a really good fit. On long term, if you want to create a marketing website, a landing page, then I think you should use another static site generator or a more sophisticated tool. Just for completeness sake, Doxify is not the only solution that you can look into. The one that comes probably closest to Doxify and is a bit more sophisticated is Docusaurus, made by Meta. They have more plugins and so on. We used it in a previous project, but there were a couple downsides back then. For example, the sidebar menu wasn't rendered automatically. You had to auto-generate that somehow yourself, which was painful. I guess they solved that by now. But overall, it's very solid. The one downside that I can also see for Docusaurus is that all pages somehow look the same unless you put in significant effort to do something special. 
that doesn't have to be a huge downside for you. Maybe it's good to have the same layout for every project, but it felt a bit boring or just not really tailored to our needs. And the alternative that a lot of people usually mention is Gitbook or MDBook. Those are tools that are a bit more developer-focused. They also render Markdown, of course, as the name says. But those are really helpful for writing long-form content like books or longer documentation, very technical stuff, but not necessarily a product homepage or something that needs a dedicated landing page or dedicated sections. And the plugins are more focused on writing rather than presenting a solution if that makes any sense. But now we have talked a lot about tools and pipelines and what you can use to create the documentation. But at the end, you still have to write the documentation and the content and create the videos that you show on the website. And usually that's the time-consuming task and not finding the right tool. Sometimes that's also the problem of us developers, right? We are discussing a lot about the tools and forget about just writing the documentation and thinking about the text and the the audience, how the audience perceives that and the context of the audience, what they need exactly in their current situation. And I think for us, that's the next big step. So we have to think about the different audience groups, what is needed, where do we have to add more information, maybe also reasoning, why did we decide like that? Why did we decide to use a framework or another framework, a tool? Especially explaining those decision processes, that's a big difference, I think, because that's also why Redis is that good. The creator explained all the reasoning why he decided to use algorithm A and not algorithm B, and he has almost papers, I would say. It's not just text, it's almost papers with descriptions, reasonings, graphs, so the whole decision process is in there. And I think that's really a good documentation if you talk with developers because they want to know exactly how the decision was made and why. Because then you can also learn as a developer a lot while integrating this tool like Redis, for example, or in the future, Open Podcast. And as always, add a way for people to give you any feedback or to ask questions add a link to a discussion forum whatever it is maybe github discussions or whatever that is also true for us please continue giving us feedback send us an email or create a github issue if you find a problem with setting up open podcast and we'd be happy to integrate your feedback into the final product and with that said matthias we can start to write our documentation have a nice week bye